Chapter 3.5 of the 9-11 Commission Report This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Siebold The 9-11 Commission Report Chapter 3.5 And in the State Department and the Defense Department The State Department the Commission asked Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage in 2004 why the State Department had so long pursued what seemed and ultimately proved to be a hopeless effort to persuade the Taliban regime in Afghanistan to deport bin Laden. Armitage replied, We do what the State Department does. We don't go out and fly bombers. We don't do things like that. We do our part in these things. Fifty years earlier, the person in Armitage's position would not have spoken of the Department of State as having such a limited role. Until the late 1950s, the Department dominated the processes of advising the President and Congress on U.S. relations with the rest of the world. The National Security Council was created in 1947 largely as a result of lobbying from the Pentagon for a forum where the military could object if they thought the State Department was setting national objectives that the United States did not have the wherewithal to pursue. The State Department retained primacy until the 1960s, when the Kennedy and Johnson administrations turned instead to Robert McNamara's Defense Department, where a mini-State Department was created to analyze foreign policy issues. President Richard Nixon then concentrated policy planning and policy coordination in a powerful National Security Council staff overseen by Henry Kissinger. In later years, individual secretaries of state were important figures, but the department's role continued to erode. State came into the 1990s overmatched by the resources of other departments and with little support for its budget either in the Congress or in the President's Office of Management and Budget. Like the FBI and the CIA's Directorate of Operations, the State Department had a tradition of emphasizing service in the field over service in Washington. Even ambassadors, however, often found host governments not only making connections with the U.S. government through their own missions in Washington, but working through the CIA station or a defense attaché. Increasingly, the embassies themselves were overshadowed by powerful regional commanders-in-chief reporting to the Pentagon counterterrorism. In the 1960s and 1970s, the State Department managed counterterrorism policy. It was the official channel for communication with the governments presumed to be behind the terrorists. Moreover, since terrorist incidents of this period usually ended in negotiations, an ambassador or other embassy official was the logical person to represent U.S. interests. Keeping U.S. diplomatic efforts against terrorism coherent was a recurring challenge. In 1976, at the direction of Congress, the Department elevated its coordinator for combating terrorism to the rank equivalent to an assistant secretary of state. As an ambassador at large, this official sought to increase the visibility of counterterrorism matters within the Department and to help integrate U.S. policy implementation among government agencies. The prolonged crisis of 1979 to 1981, when 53 Americans were held hostage at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, ended the State Department leadership in counterterrorism. President Carter's assertive national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, took charge, and the coordination function remained thereafter in the White House. President Reagan's second Secretary of State, George Shultz, advocated active U.S. efforts to combat terrorism, often recommending the use of military force. 
Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger opposed Schultz, who made little headway against Weinberger, or even within his own department. Though Schultz elevated the status and visibility of counterterrorism coordination by appointing as coordinator first L. Paul Bremer and then Robert Oakley, both senior career ambassadors of high standing in the Foreign Service, the department continued to be dominated by regional bureaus for which terrorism was not a first-order concern. Secretaries of State after Schultz took less personal interest in the problem. Only congressional opposition prevented President Clinton's first Secretary of State, Warren Christopher, from merging terrorism into a new bureau that would have also dealt with narcotics and crime. The coordinator under Secretary Madeleine Albright told the commission that his job was seen as a minor one within the department. Although the description of his status has been disputed, and Secretary Albright strongly supported the August 1998 strikes against bin Laden, the role played by the Department of State in counterterrorism was often cautionary before 9-11. This was a reflection of the reality that counterterrorism priorities nested within broader foreign policy aims of the U.S. government. State Department counselor officers around the world, it should not be forgotten, were constantly challenged by the problem of terrorism, for they handled visas for travel to the United States. After it was discovered that Abdul Rahman, the blind sheikh, had come and gone almost at will, state initiated significant reforms to its watch list and visa processing policies. In 1993, Congress passed legislation allowing state to retain visa processing fees for border security. Those fees were then used by the department to fully automate the terrorist watch list. By the late 1990s, state had created a worldwide real-time electronic database of visa, law enforcement, and watch list information, the core of the post-9-11 border screening systems. Still, as will be seen later, the system had many holes. The Department of Defense The Department of Defense is the behemoth among federal agencies. With an annual budget larger than the gross domestic product of Russia, it is an empire. The Defense Department is part civilian, part military. The civilian Secretary of Defense has ultimate control under the President. Among the uniformed military, the top official is the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who is supported by a joint staff divided into standard military staff compartments, J-2 Intelligence, J-3 Operations, and so on. Because of the necessary and demanding focus on the differing mission of each service and their long and proud traditions, the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps have often fought ferociously over roles and missions in warfighting and over budgets and posts of leadership. Two developments diminish this competition. The first was the passage by Congress in 1986 of the Goldwater-Nichols Act, which, among other things, mandated that promotion to high rank required some period of duty with a different service or with a joint, i.e., multi-service command. This had strong and immediate effects loosening the loyalties of senior officers to their separate services and causing them to think more broadly about the military establishment as a whole. However, it also may have lessened the diversity of military advice and options presented to the President. The Goldwater-Nichols example is seen by some as having lessons applicable to lessening competition and increasing cooperation in other parts of the federal bureaucracy, particularly the law enforcement and intelligence communities. The second related development was a significant transfer of planning and command responsibilities from the service chiefs and their staffs to the joint and unified commands outside of Washington, 
especially those for strategic forces and for four regions europe the pacific the center and the south posts in these commands became prized assignments for ambitious officers and the voices of their five commanders-in-chief became as influential as those of the service chiefs counterterrorism the pentagon first became concerned about terrorism as a result of hostage-taking in the nineteen seventies in june nineteen seventy six palestinian terrorists seized an air france plane and landed it at entebbe in uganda holding one hundred five israelis and other jews as hostages a special israeli commando force stormed the plane killed all the terrorists and rescued all but one of the hostages in october nineteen seventy seven a west german special force dealt similarly with a lufthansa plane sitting on a tarmac in mogadishu every terrorist was killed and every hostage brought back safely the white house members of congress and the news media asked the pentagon whether the united states was prepared for similar action the answer was no the army immediately set about creating the delta force one of whose missions was hostage rescue the first test for the new force did not go well it came in april nineteen eighty during the iranian hostage crisis when navy helicopters with marine pilots flew to a site known as desert one some two hundred miles southeast of tehran to rendezvous with air force planes carrying delta force commandos and fresh fuel mild sandstorms disabled three of the helicopters and the commander ordered the mission aborted but foul-ups on the ground resulted in the loss of eight aircraft five airmen and three marines remembered as desert one this failure remained vivid for members of the armed forces it also contributed to the later goldwater nichols reforms in nineteen eighty three came hezbollah's massacre of the marines in beirut president reagan quickly withdrew u s forces from lebanon a reversal later routinely cited by jihadists as evidence of u s weakness a detailed investigation produced a list of new procedures that would become customary for forces deployed abroad they involved a number of defensive measures including caution not only about strange cars and trucks but also about unknown aircraft overhead force protection became a significant claim on the time and resources of the department of defense a decade later the military establishment had another experience that evoked both desert one and the withdrawal from beirut the first president bush had authorized the use of u s military forces to ensure humanitarian relief in war-torn somalia tribal factions interfered with the supply missions by the autumn of nineteen ninety three u s commanders concluded that the main source of trouble was a warlord mohammed farah adid an army special force launched a raid on mogadishu to capture him in the course of a long night two black hawk helicopters were shot down seventy-three americans were wounded eighteen were killed and the world's television screens showed images of an american corpse dragged through the streets by exultant somalis under pressure from congress president clinton soon ordered the withdrawal of u s forces black hawk down joined desert one as a symbol among americans in uniform code phrases used to evoke the risks of daring exploits without maximum preparation overwhelming force and a well-defined mission in 1995-1996 the defense department began to invest effort in planning how to handle the possibility of a domestic terrorist incident involving weapons of mass destruction 
The idea of a domestic command for homeland defense began to be discussed in 1997, and in 1999 the Joint Chiefs developed a concept for the establishment of a domestic unified command. Congress killed the idea. Instead, the Department established the Joint Forces Command, located in Norfolk, Virginia, making it responsible for military response to domestic emergencies, both natural and man-made. Pursuant to the Nunn-Luger-Domenici Domestic Preparedness Program, the Defense Department began in 1997 to train first responders in 120 of the nation's largest cities. As a key part of its efforts, Defense created National Guard WMD civil support teams to respond in the event of a WMD terrorist incident. A total of 32 such National Guard teams were authorized by fiscal year 2001. Under the command of state governors, they provided support to civilian agencies to assess the nature of the attack, offer medical and technical advice, and coordinate state and local responses. The Department of Defense, like the Department of State, had a coordinator who represented the department on the interagency committee concerned with counterterrorism. By the end of President Clinton's first term, this official had become the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict. The experience of the 1980s had suggested to the military establishment that if it were to have a role in counterterrorism, it would be a traditional military role, to act against state sponsors of terrorism. And the military had what seemed an excellent example of how to do it. In 1986, a bomb went off at a disco in Berlin, killing two American soldiers. Intelligence clearly linked the bombing to Libya's Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. President Reagan ordered airstrikes against Libya. The operation was not cost-free. The United States lost two planes. Evidence accumulated later, including the 1988 bombing of Pan Am 103, clearly showed that the operation did not curb Gaddafi's interest in terrorism. However, it was seen at the time as a success. The lesson then taken from Libya was that terrorism could be stopped by the use of U.S. air power that inflicted pain on the authors or sponsors of terrorist acts. This lesson was applied using Tomahawk missiles early in the Clinton administration. George H. W. Bush was scheduled to visit Kuwait to be honored for his rescue of that country in the Gulf War of 1991. Kuwaiti security services warned Washington that Iraqi agents were planning to assassinate the former president. President Clinton not only ordered precautions to protect Bush, but asked about options for a reprisal against Iraq. The Pentagon proposed 12 targets for Tomahawk missiles. Debate in the White House and at the CIA about possible collateral damage pared the list down to three, then to one, Iraqi intelligence headquarters in central Baghdad. The attack was made at night to minimize civilian casualties. Twenty-three missiles were fired. Other than one civilian casualty, the operation seemed completely successful. The intelligence headquarters was demolished. No further intelligence came in about terrorist acts planned by Iraq. The 1986 attack in Libya and the 1993 attack on Iraq symbolized for the military establishment effective use of military power for counterterrorism, limited retaliation with air power, aimed at deterrence. What remained was the hard question of how deterrence could be effective when the adversary was a loose transnational network. End of chapter 3.5 Recording by Bob Siebold